when you look at the dead malls that are out there, it's not distributed evenly. If the internet was the only thing that was driving the obsolescence of malls, then you'd see an even distribution of dead malls around the United States. But you don't see that. You are listening to the AFIRE podcast. Real estate, technology, cross-border investing, and the opportunities of a changing world. Let's start a conversation now. All right, so it, it, it's been an interesting path that we've been on over the last six months uh, from perhaps September, October, when we thought the end of the world was coming, to now it, it seems like optimism is rising. And I'm hearing some investors talking about pricing starting to come down. They're optimistic about being able to pencil out deals that maybe they couldn't before. And some people are even saying that they think that the Fed is going to stop raising rates over the next few months. So, you know, there is this kind of sense that we've gotten past the worst and and maybe maybe uh, good times are here again. So I, I figured let, let's bring the discussion down to earth by maybe having our first conversation of 2023 with uh, Jim Costello. He's an old friend of AFIRE and the chief economist at MSCI Real Assets. And I, I really, you know, first of all, thank you for joining me, Jim, on the AFIRE podcast at the beginning of the new year. It's a great time to, to be here with you. Excellent. Well, I, I guess since it's such a great time and since we're getting a sense of optimism, I, I, I guess I have one simple question for you. Is, is everything awesome right now or what? You know, my attitude, everything is awesome. I'm alive and breathing, you know, so things are good. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in the, in the real estate world, could you make money like you did before, buying everything at a low cap rate and expecting the uh, ongoing cap rate compression? Maybe not. Maybe you got to do new things. But life's an opportunity, and there are still opportunities out there. Everything we're looking at is pointing towards falling deal volume. Right. And that was you know, one of the consistent stories across all of our global reports for 2022. Deal volume was at excessive highs in 2021 with a combination of a recovering economy and you know, cheap credit and low yields for everything, making real estate seem like a screaming buy for many investors. Mm -hmm. That is done. The, the inflation spikes that we saw in 2022, as you take a dormant economy and wake it up, and have people start spending money again. There, you know, we had supply con- uh, constraints. There was only so many channels of delivering goods, and so many you know, folks working at shops. Only so many people working at the airport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we had we had you know challenges that led to inflationary spikes. You know, the Fed has been trying to, and other central banks have been trying to raise rates to tamp down demand a bit to have things uh, come in at an easier level. Inflation has been moderating, and there is some optimism around that uh, from from folks in the marketplace. I wonder at times if that optimism is a little too much. Folks mm-hmm. thinking that we can just go right back to where we were. We had a similar thing in the seventies. You know, the Fed was raising rates. There was an inflationary period that started to ease, and they let off the gas. And then we went right back to a high inflationary period, and they had to come back and raise rates even stronger. Mm-hmm. Kind of think it's almost like uh, somebody who's sick and they're taking antibiotics and they feel better, 
and so they stop, but then the infection comes back because they didn't really kill it. I wonder, you know, do we face those similar risks? And, and you know, the Fed and Bank of England, Bank of Canada, they're all doing all this stuff on their own for their domestic economies. But the one of the big things that I don't think folks have really looked at so much is just the impact of China reopening. You know, we had extreme lockdowns there for more than a thousand days. And one of our folks uh, here at MSCI on the equity team wrote a really interesting blog highlighting just how rapidly the markets are reflating in China. Uh, prices are going up sharply uh, of, of assets and stocks because you know performance was hampered with everybody locked up. Now they're coming back. Uh, you know, will that generate more oil demand? That was the big driver in early 2022 for for inflation in every major uh, economy around the world. Oil prices were going up, independent of the geopolitical concerns, because everybody was starting to travel again. Right. Yeah. I look at my social media and my friends in China, and everybody's traveling again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is the same thing going to happen there? You know, will will the Fed raising rates? Uh, change the pattern of Chinese consumers who are suddenly able to travel again? I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so, so there are risks out there that uh, I don't think uh, it's a slam dunk that everything's done and you know, inflation is, is killed. You know, there are other risks and, you know, previous behavior shows us otherwise, mm-hmm. but, mm-hmm. You know, there there is a lot of optimism in the marketplace today that okay rates went up sharply maybe it's all going to go back to where it was and we don't have to realize any losses maybe we can hold on to this property for a while and rates will come down below two percent again and we can just keep that game going and you know maybe rates do come down would they go down to the lows we saw from you know, 2020 and early 2021, where you're under 2% for the 10-year U.S. Treasury. In a way, I hope we don't go back to that kind of a low level. Because what that low level uh, means is that there were fundamental challenges in the economy. You, know, you don't have a low interest rate environment like that without uh, 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 an economy that's you know on its knees. Mm-hmm. Uh, the firms are growing and investing and building for the future. They're demanding capital, and so the cost of capital goes up. Uh, the, when the cost of capital is so low, which I said that nobody saw any growth opportunities, they're just sticking everything they had under the mattress, effectively. Right. So it's just you know we want some growth in the fundamentals. We want some growth in income. We want firms to invest in new machinery, buy that new uh, paper processing machine and mm-hmm. stick it in a modern manufacturing uh, asset you've built outside of uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, you, know, you know, that's the kind of stuff that takes capital and it drives growth. And it's, it's inconsistent to think you have high growth and low interest rates. Right. They don't go together. But one of the concerns that I also have, so most of the more optimistic scenarios that people paint is that they're not seeing a, a, a drop in interest rates for 
call it a year at least, and, and others that put it out two or three years, which means that if you're sitting there hanging on for a drop, uh, you've, you may have a long wait before things get back to even not maybe 2%, but maybe down to a, a more reasonable 4% or something along those lines or 3%. If, if, if that's happening, uh, I guess the real question on a lot of people's minds, especially cross-border investors, is where's the distress? Yeah, you know, Where are we going to be able to take advantage of the distress? It is the case that uh, some folks, if, they're, if their debt is structured such that they don't have to realize anything in the next two years, yeah, why, why sell now? Why right. take a loss? Don't take a loss until you're forced to take a loss. People are risk-averse in that. Right. Loss-averse, I should say. So if you can hold out, why not? And that's why the deal market has been in uh, a state of retreat worldwide. Mm -hmm. Buyers looking at an asset, looking at all the opportunities there, they're going to price in every worst-case downside scenario uh, around that acquisition. Owners... You know, if they think that, well, maybe in two years, rates will be in a better spot. We can refinance again. It'll be more expensive, but the property will have a little bit more income if we're lucky. So why take a loss now? We can just wait and see if we can do better in the future. So that's why the deal market's on. The folks looking for those distressed assets, it's going to be different. I mean, this is one of the challenges, and it's it's another human behavior thing that that's pretty consistent People are always fighting the last war. Right. Now, you go back to uh, the early stages of the internet bust, and people are thinking that, oh, I'm going to be the next Sam Zell. I'm going to buy, uh, we're going to have tremendous uh, declines in property prices, be all these defaults, and so I can buy everything on the cheap and start my own uh, company like that. And it never materialized. It didn't right. materialize because they fundamentally misread what that recession was. It wasn't a financial recession. It was a demand shock. And it was combined with uh, an easing of credit market conditions at the same time that helped drive real estate values up. Right. So it, it just didn't materialize. But that's, but that's the behavior. People look and see, well, what was the last bad event we went through? And it'll be just like it. In the aftermath of the global financial crisis, there was a surge in distressed asset sales. Right. right. And, and people made a business out of going in, fixing all the problems around that, and uh, then you know, bringing assets back to the market uh, once uh, uh, credit market conditions eased. Uh, but I would argue that that was a very brief window. It was a brief window. You know, unlike the early 90s where we basically made hay for a couple of years. I mean, there was, it was, it was like you, you, you blinked and you missed it uh, right after the great financial crisis where we were suddenly just jumping up like crazy. Nonetheless, some people who did made a lot of money. And, <laughs> yeah. and so people see that and there's that uh, monkey see, monkey do attitude and right. folks just, you know, realize, oh, well, they made a lot of money doing that in the last downturn. We're in a new downturn. Maybe I can repeat the same thing. But you know, the conditions are different this time through. Uh, there is going to be a bit of financial distress. If you have folks who got a short-term loan in 2021 and a record high LTV and a, a 
incredibly low mortgage rate. If that comes due in 2023 because it was a two-year term, they're going to have a bad day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're Mm -hmm. going to put more capital into it to refi, or they may have to just throw the keys back at the lender. Uh, So uh, will that be everybody? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Just looking at the distribution of where all the loans were at, uh, in terms of when they were originated, you're not going to have everybody facing that kind of distress in the short term. Um, you know, there's a, a number of different, um, you know, term structures. People with you know longer term loans in place that can afford to wait a bit to not have to realize a loss. Uh, but there are going to be some that have some short term loans. Are those opportunities going to be present? Yeah, that's also tricky because a lot of people, you know, people remember what they went through after the financial crisis. Uh, they remember the challenges that were in place with uh, you know, trying to work out loans and, and figure out uh, the, the you know, restructuring. So a lot of folks have already jumped on sort of trying to set up their own vehicles mm-hmm. uh, such that, well, I was the lender, so I have, I have control. Right. <laughs> so there were a lot of folks that were uh, focused on that in this expansion period thinking about being poised to take advantage of of any financial dislocation. So I'm not sure I'm not sure it presents itself as an opportunity in quite the same way as before because people um people already know that there there can be a dislocation. I mean the you know at a number of industry conferences some prominent folks have talked about how they set up their debt funds with that notion in mind. But it, it seems to me, even if there's not a general um, kind of distress environment due to kind of the, the shortfall in terms of debt, uh, even if that doesn't happen, it seems like a lot of the discussion now is around um, accelerated obsolescence of of the most favored property type of the last 30, 40 years of office, especially that office that's not A or A plus office in the best locations. There seems to be an opportunity there that people are getting more interested in, which is, can these be converted? Can they be revitalized? Or do I really have to, do I have to call it a loss on some of these office buildings that are having trouble with tenancy? And despite what, you know, certain bankers might be saying about insisting that everyone return to the office, we do seem to be in a permanent environment that is not necessarily everyone working from home. No, but it, it, all you need to do is have a 10 to 20% switch in terms of how many people are in the office. And that's a significant impact on the existing office occupancy. So that being said, I mean, and, and it's not just office anymore. Certainly retail is, has, is in its, you know, right, 20th right. year of transition into something else. So, right. so, so what's there? there two, two different threats thre- thre- right. there. Distress in the obsolescence of assets and then transformation of the economy. Right. So let's, let's, let's separate these. To the extent there have been distressed asset sales, there's always distressed asset sales. Even right. in good periods, right. something goes wrong in a property. But the distress that we've seen, and we've seen a little bit more distress. It's not the huge portion of the market, but it's still, you know, it's still there. It's it's fundamental distress. It is a mall in the suburbs of an industrial town in the Rust Belt mm-hmm. that was built in the 1960s or 1970s. It has significant deferred maintenance. Um, you know orange tiles and brown carpeting and it 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 
was built originally so that the manufacturing workers of this Rust Belt town, you know, could go buy their polyester pants and, uh, you know, just all, all the shopping things that were there. Uh, the income left those areas. Mm-hmm. These are just not needed in the same way anymore. Uh, so that kind of retail is facing obsolescence. And you know, what do you do with it? But it's but it's not- interesting to me that you're talking about it in terms of the general economy of these regions versus talking about the uh, general kind of trend line of more internet shopping killing retail. You're, you're talking about it more from the standpoint of the, the, the shoppers have changed, moved, or lost their incomes, and therefore well, yeah. there's an obsolescence. Yeah. When you look at the dead malls that are out there, it's it's not distributed evenly. It's mm-hmm. not in every... If if the internet was the only thing that was driving the obsolescence of malls, then you'd see an even distribution of dead malls around the United States. Mm-hmm. But you don't see that. Uh, you see uh, it, it's largely in the industrial Midwest where you had a hollowing out of the labor base that shopped at these places in the 60s and 70s and 80s when they built them. Mm-hmm. And these assets are uh, are are changing. You know, the, the fundamental use is gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let me get back to distress. Distress, to the extent it happens, it is uh, the the uh, you know the fundamental distress like that, where the economic rationale for for the asset has changed. And and so the success strategy there is going to be different than the success strategy for a distressed asset in the aftermath of the financial crisis. I mean, in a sense, you know, that, that, that distress strategy, it was a financial one. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody got ahead of their skis, they were too highly leveraged, and then they went into default. A bunch of suits from New York uh, fly in, scoop up the asset, put an appropriate level of debt on it, uh, wait for the market to stabilize a bit, sell it off at a gain. Uh, you know, very little work to be done. It's just, uh, uh, you just have to have really good lawyers and, uh, just steady access to capital. Mm-hmm. Easy to do. Right. Not easy to do, but you know, it's, uh, uh, you, you don't get your hands dirty, which is what the successful folks who have been looking at the fundamental distress really have in common. To the extent folks have been buying distress assets so far, it's really the local developer owner operators who have been scooping up these fundamentally distressed assets. That's what is driving a lot of the stress that we, the minimal distress we have, but such as it is, you know, that's what's happening. It's, it's folks who know how to swing a hammer. Right. It's that person who just, you know, knows all the local development agency regulations and has their relationships with the planning department to be able to get their permits approved in a more timely basis. And, you know, that, that, skill set is different than the success that dealt with the distress in the aftermath of uh, the financial crisis. And so for hotel, or rather, well, there are some fundamentally distressed hotels where the, the, the nature of the demand has changed. Right. But the big ones are retail. It's been an ongoing issue, but it's not just the internet. It's, it's just the economic transformation of an area. But what do you do with that? You know, it, it, sure. Uh, you can take a, a dead mall, build some high-density housing around it, and, and then if you have housing, you have some shops, 
uh, you know, create some justification for shops that are there if you revitalize them a bit. Uh, and you know, other mixed use type things uh, uh, get some density. But does that work in a Rust Belt town that the population and income is half of what it was in the 1970s? No, mm-hmm. it's just you're not going to do that in an area where uh, you know you've had a hollowing out of the economy. Like some of the Centro properties, um, you know, which on average that portfolio in the run up to the uh, financial crisis that traded an average of like $200 a square foot. Uh, some of those buildings today are being sold uh, for like three or $4 a square foot. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're, you're paying land value at that point and that's a reduced land value in any case yeah. because these are not you know, dynamic growing economies. So you know, who's going to take a risk and build high end housing and luxury shops Right in in those areas. Now there are some old malls that have gone through that. Uh, right across from the Apple campus, uh, an old mall was converted and you know, to very higher end use. Uh, that's you know, but you have all kinds of income in the local area to support that. Right. Right. But you know those conversion issues, it's frightfully difficult, even in an area where we have income growth and population growth. Right. Because you start swinging a hammer, pulling down walls, you don't know what you're going to find. Right. And then uh, the permit process is a difficult and you get some approval in place and then you get some change orders. It's, it's not easy money just to right. flip right. it over to some new use, which is a segue to talk about <laughs> offices. Right. But, but there it's interesting new- to me. So what we're, what, what you're really differentiating from is that financial turnaround because something yeah. is broken financially because the economy has gone in direction. And now what we're talking about is real estate broke, something right. that, that you have to come in as a real estate professional, really know what you're doing, take actual real estate risk, not just financial risk, um, and be able to make that happen. And again, it's not universal. So, you know, that town in Ohio, probably a lot riskier than than someplace in, in Silicon Valley in terms of some of these plays. I, I think that's interesting because it really kind of takes us back from perhaps where real estate has lived for the last 20 years, which is playing the financial ups and downs. And now we're we're talking about real estate again. I will I will say this about Ohio though. I don't want to make it my punching bag. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. I, I've been saying the Rust Belt, not just uh, <laughs> in the past. I may picked a couple of Ohio cities. Uh, uh, Columbus, for instance, is is on a bit of a rebound. Yeah, there's a lot of optimism there around nearshoring and uh, reshoring. Uh, you know, chip manufacturing plants going into Columbus. Yeah, and so a revitalization of an industrial base. Uh, so, uh, that, that who knows, maybe some of those assets, uh, could suddenly take on a new life, but it's, uh, uh, so there's, but there are challenges throughout the Rust Belt. No, no question. But the Rust Belt is also ideally placed, not perhaps today, although there's a lot of growth happening or seeds for growth happening, not just in Ohio, but throughout the Rust Belt and the Great Lakes region, but the Great Lakes region has the least amount of risk from a climate change perspective and the most amount of fresh water. One imagines in the next 10 to 20 years, it's going to be far more attractive to be in, you know, in these Rust Belt towns, especially if we reshore or create new industrial uh, processes uh, that, you know, with 3D uh, printing, with, you know, with advanced robotics, which still has some employment required. The more that we have here, perhaps the more 
people will have enough money to go to their mall and buy polyester again. Yeah, the Midwest, it it, it has some great things going for it. Uh, you know, low cost of living, access to water. I mean, that's uh, uh, that's huge. But it's um, you know, it, and yeah, there are some climate risks in other areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there 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 can be some benefits. It's a matter of just making sure that you have a you know dynamic, uh, 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 educated labor base. Right. And the challenge has always been, you can't keep the boy down on the farm. Right. Uh, I'm here in New York. I grew up in Chicago. Still love Chicago, you know. But it's uh, there's just so many more opportunities on the coast. Absolutely. And and that is certainly probably the story for some time to come. But it's 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 worth keeping an eye on that. I know the folks at Heitman are doing a really nice job of talking about not this year, but you know over the next ten plus years, there are some opportunities in the Midwest that might people are currently overlooking. But I think that's kind of interesting. That all right. So take us to office then. Uh, given now that you've explained retail and we now understand it completely, what the issue is that it's not just the internet. It's it's a general economy. Uh, is it a similar story then for office? And, and, and let me preamble this by saying, I know we've been having, you know, every, every podcast, every, every association meeting, every gathering of anyone in real estate, we all talk about office because we're all freaked out about it. And we don't really have any answers yet about what's going to happen there. But given the, 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 the kind of model of retail and the experiences there, how would you apply that to what you think our journey is going forward? With office, one thing I've been thinking about is that everything that's been happening of late, with you know, people working from home, you know, the hollowing out to some of the cities, in a way, there's nothing new about that. This is just a continuation of a trend that's been all around since the 1950s. Right. When you go back to the 50s, half of all financial sector employment in the United States, something like that, roughly, uh, was on the island of Manhattan. Um, I got that figure from something my colleagues um, uh, Bill Wheaton and Art Jones had done back when I was at CBRE. They never published it in the paper, uh, but it it, uh, it was really striking just the, the the decline in the employment base here in terms of the share of the overall market. Right. Uh, and the reason it fell so much is because suddenly you had high-tech tools like fax machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cheap long distance phone calling. Yeah, you, you talk to some younger folks in the industry today, and you say, "Well, you know, long distance phone calling is cheaper." What <laughs> cost to cost to make a phone call? Uh, yeah, and and you know, so we start to see firms move activity off to the suburbs. There's a reason. There's a suburban office market. Right. It wasn't because of the real estate cost. You know, we all get focused on real estate, real estate costs, but that's not the biggest cost for a firm. The biggest cost is the labor. Right. And firms were able to build these big suburban campuses, move uh, more administrative and, you know, management type activity to lower cost locations from a labor perspective. Right. Because if you have to have someone drive an hour and a half every day to get to their office in a downtown location, you know, that's a, that's a cost that they then have to internalize themselves and think, Hmm, do I want to deal with this? Right. And if the answer is, you know, 
no, then you got to pay them a little bit more to incentivize them to come in. But suddenly, you know, in the 1970s, you got this uh, suburban office campus. You can move uh, some of your uh, you know, payroll department out there and other activities. Suddenly, uh, as there's Stone Arbor, you don't have to pay people nearly as much to be hired in. Right. So, you know, people look at that commute cost as, you know, something that, okay, if I'm going to have to get there and have to pay, you have to pay a lot more in time and tolls and, you know, parking fees, whatever, uh, they're going to want to get paid more. So firms are able to reduce their labor costs in that sense. Uh, but, you know, th that's, that's where I see uh, the work from home phenomena really going as well with the um, you know, a reduction of commute cost. Yeah. For sure. So it's it's a it's a pay issue. <laughs> if if I have an option of spending the time and effort to come to the office versus uh, just working at home, um, I need to get compensated to uh, to be there. Right. Uh, so it's it's you know firms if they value having people together for whatever reason, uh, and I think there are reasons to collaborate and be around others. Right. But not every position. And for the for the positions that don't need to do that, um, you know, for firms, maybe they don't need to, as long as they are just well managed and they hire the right people and they incentivize them properly, they don't need them to be together. And and so so that does generate a bit of risk. But here's the thing, even though uh, you know a big financial hub saw a bit of a hollowing out as new high tech tools, uh, you know, allowed lower cost labor, not labor. You know, lower value add activities to be sent to lower co labor cost areas. Right. Uh, it's not as though like places like Manhattan went away. Uh, I mean, the office market has surged tremendously since the 1950s. Right. And you know what? Because there's another element of it. Uh, if you're if you're if you're taking some of the administrative activities and shifting it to other locations, the remaining folks are the ones who have tremendous social capital who need to get out and about and see each other, visit with their clients and go, uh, you know, go hang out uh, uh, with uh, the big wigs and suits and ties and do deals at night and just talk about, you know, how capital flow is going to be, and what the next big job is, is going to be. Uh, those networks, uh, you know, what you're going to, you're going to, Tell them, oh, okay, well, here's an office for you, and it's a, it's a little shoebox, and it's no good, and there's no amenities. No, they're going to want the nicest of the nice, right? <laughs> because they, you know, if, uh, you know, if if what you're left with are highly high social capital folks, uh, they're going to, you know, uh, ha have higher levels of income and just be more demanding in terms of what they want. So, it's weird. I think you know, you, yeah, you probably see some reduction in demand for offices overall. You have a higher concentration of high-income, demanding folks that would be left, and you know that that changes the nature of of what you know might be needed for offices. I mean, you look at the um, the story on one Vanderbilt, you know, fully leased up in the middle of all this. So, you know, do we go back to office? Do we not? And they were achieving not every floor, but some floors, three hundred dollars a square foot for rent. Yeah. So that's now that's totally different than you know a, a, 
an early 1920s building in Midtown South uh, that you know has leaky windows and right. oil boiler and uh, you know uh, a sketchy elevator uh, that um, uh, you know isn't really good for a good corporate image. So it's it's uh, it'll be a have and have nots. Mm-hmm. But that that you know that building Midtown South it's going to be a problem because of environmental issues right. needing to move towards a net, uh, net zero carbon efficient world. Uh, the capital to renovate that may not be there. Yeah. It just doesn't generate that kind of income. And that's the kind of stuff that at some point probably makes sense to convert that to something else. Yeah. But to get there, someone's going to have to take an awful loss. Um, nobody's got, you know, hard figures and all of this, but, you know, developers I've been talking to think that, you know, buildings that may be sold for a thousand bucks a square foot back in the boom, uh, you need to be able to buy it at about a hundred dollars a square foot to make it financially viable to take on all the risks and all the administrative burdens of converting it to a residential property. Mm-hmm. And if I own that building, <laughs> I don't want to take that hit. Yeah. No. I'm going to, I'm going to delay that as long as possible. And so, you know, there's all kinds of optimism that, oh, all these unneeded offices will be converted over. It'll take time. It's not going to happen overnight. Right. I kind of think of it like um, uh, I, I was rewatching that movie After Hours uh, the other month. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's set in like Soho, New York in the 1980s, early 80s. There's all, and nowadays you walk through there, Soho is dangerous these days, not because of crime, but because it's so crowded that, you know, there's too many people on the sidewalks and uh, too many cars zipping by at a fast pace. Somebody's going to get hit by a car. Uh, Back then it was just totally empty. They filmed these movies at night just on the streets and, and, uh, uh, (laughs) it's just amazing to see the set and just see, uh, those streets today, just how different it is. But you, know, you had an economic transformation that took away the demand for the space in the area. Right. You know, those were it was a small manufacturing area that all moved out to outer boroughs, to New Jersey, you know, other countries, and so you had a lot of abandoned real estate you know, because you know nobody you know could make a go of it. Um, wouldn't be surprised if you see some office buildings like that too. Yeah, and I, it, the, I guess the question for me is, how long does that process take? And it may take as long as it took for places like Soho, you know, multiple decades of of distress before the, finally people let go of it. I mean, part of what concerns me, you talk about the the high social capital worker. Um, if you're going to be playing New York as one of those workers the ideal location is going to be something like one Vanderbilt that is literally connected to all the transit hubs. I mean, it's actually goes into the building. I think that's one of the most powerful parts of one Vanderbilt. Yes, it's beautiful. It's well-built. It's Heinz did an amazing job as they always do. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful building. And I would love to have an office there. I think very few people would, would say no to that. Um, but the fact that you literally go downstairs to multiple train lines, uh, I think is really powerful. And I think you know, that was dismissed a little bit during COVID. And I think erroneously, because everyone thought no one's going to want to get on a train again. You know, everyone's going to drive again, Uh, which of course didn't happen. And if you need a level of high social capital, you need to be right on top of it. So to your point, Midtown, maybe to the edges of places like that, they have a real geographic problem for those kinds of work centers. 
Um, well, this is this is the point. You have uh, uh, you know high degree of social capital workers. It's all about networking, getting around, talking to people. So you need to be in areas that's easy to get to. If you're in a building that it's just a pain in the ass to get to it, uh, that's that's going to be a hard thing. There's a reason that rents in lower Manhattan have always been about 60% of those in Midtown. It's because you get off at you know Penn or Grand Central, then you have to transfer to a new train and get down to you know lower Manhattan. Right. And you know, sometimes the Lex line just doesn't run well, and then you've got problems. Right. So... Yeah, so you you are as a tenant um, looking for a bit of a discount to go through that. To the extent you can build more efficient transit links, you make that real estate more valuable. And it's interesting this phenomenon we have of uh, people saying, "Well, I don't want to deal with the long commute anymore. I want to stay at home." Um, it's not happening in every part of the world. Some of it's cultural, right? But like Japan, you know. Still, people go in the office a lot. Yeah. Uh, one of the issues there too, though, uh, much better public transit, and, and so the notion of living a long distance from the city and then coming in, uh, it's much easier to do. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, uh, you know, distance from like New Haven to uh, to New York, uh, that's an easy commute. So, what are you concerned about right now? What do you think? maybe you would advise an investor to pay more attention to than they are now? You know, the, the year ahead, uh, there, there's a lot of optimism around the potential for rates to trend lower, uh, for mortgage rates to trend lower, I should say. And, you know, an ease of kind of getting into financing situations again. I'd be careful about that because, you know, is it going to happen? Maybe. I don't know. But, you know, there are compelling arguments in the other direction, too. Don't just look at the one argument on it. Look at the range of of potential outcomes. And you know, if, if your investment is only going to survive, if you get that best case scenario of inflation being totally dead and the Fed reversing course, um, you know, it uh, uh, that might not work. <laughs> so you you need to be thinking in a more probabilistic sense of you know, am I okay if I don't get just the absolute best case on on interest rate trends? Mm-hmm. And then and then but then beyond that, I think that the other big story that that I've been focusing on a slide of a news in a lot of my presentations is one just to make the point that the wind is not at our backs anymore. If you go back to the mid 1980s to today, well, to to about 2021, um, every time an investor bought a building, they were buying it in an interest rate environment that was easier than the one that the previous buyer faced. Mm-hmm. The typical holding period for an investment in the United States is about seven years. You know, so if I if I bought a building in uh, you know 2007. Then generally, the the person who bought it back in 2000 had a higher interest rate environment when they bought it, and probably a higher mortgage rate and probably a higher cap rate. So you know the, that downward trend, as you know, interest rates came down and as we learned more about inflation, uh, you know that was the wind at the back of our whole industry 
from the mid-80s until recently. Very, very few people in our industry were working in the 60s and 70s who are working today. Right. And that environment was a lot different where you know, the, the, every time uh, something sold, it was at a higher rate environment than the past. Right. And, you know, some, some challenges went with that. Uh, I, I think that, you know, that accelerates the, the um, obsolescence of some buildings because it's going to be more expensive to do ongoing CapEx. And you know, that just might not pencil out the same ways in the past. And that might help some of these um, older office buildings uh, uh, reach that point uh, where it makes sense to uh, do a conversion. But it, it's it's different than uh, the experience of just about everybody that's working in our industry today. And, you know, so the last year or so, rates have been higher than where they were seven years ago. Uh, we're probably, you know, you know, who knows where interest rates are going to go, okay? Yeah. If, 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 I'm, uh, if I could do that effectively, I'd be a very wealthy man. Uh, but... <laughs> Two percent or half a percent for the U.S. ten-year Treasury is not a sign of a healthy economy. If we're moving into a healthy economy again, then we're going to be facing a situation where some of those interest rate changes can be headwinds, as opposed to tailwinds, the way they were over, you know, that period since the you know, mid-80s. And that's a big transition that I don't think everybody's prepared for. And so, uh, you know. If if you if they're still around, talk to all the folks in your firm that were working in the '70s. You know, go see them in Florida, play some golf, and ask them. So, how'd you deal with these issues? How'd you get deals done? How'd you deal with lenders? Right, right. And uh, just just learn from their wisdom. I think that's that's good advice. So, I, I think per, if I were to summarize what you've said over the last several minutes, it it's everything is awesome, but be careful. Is that a fair assessment? <laughs> That's a good way to summarize it. Sure. We have been talking with uh, Jim Costello. He's the chief economist at MSCI Real Assets uh, uh, about where we're going here at the beginning of 2023. And good luck, everyone. And be careful out there. Thank you, Jim, for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Always good to see you, Gunnar. You've been listening to the AFIRE podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast subscription service, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitchers, and others. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice. No content in this podcast is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included has been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable. Though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of a fire. <laughs>